Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Veterans in need of treatment at a New Hampshire VA center have been told to get care elsewhere. And I says, you know what? I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to have this surgery. And I said, when I get out, I'm going to talk to my senator or congressman. And you know, after I mentioned senator or congressman, they were worried. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. That problem is one of many that whistleblowers have turned up. We'll take a closer look at how we're serving those who serve. We'll also go inside the jury box to find out how a man who says he's innocent was sentenced to prison 31 years ago. How come you have a a decision already? Is it because he's black? And they said yes. We'll go door to door with citizens who are worried about water contamination and visit a Connecticut bridge that could be a weak link in the nation's busiest rail corridor. When it fails, the entire Northeast corridor cannot operate. And we'll go back in history to a time when Boston politicians weren't as immigrant-friendly as they are today. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. A courtroom in Fall River, Massachusetts, was the site of dramatic testimony this past week. Darrell Jones, a man convicted of murder more than three decades ago, is seeking a new trial. Tuesday's hearing raised questions of racial bias by jurors, and a key juror who alleged the discrimination said that she was never summoned to court to testify. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman has our story. Lawyers are forbidden from talking to jurors before, during, and after a trial. Even now, 31 years after a jury convicted Darrell Jones of first-degree murder, neither his defense attorneys nor prosecutors can contact jurors. But reporters can, and I did. Last year, I interviewed Eleanor Urbati, one of the jurors in the 1986 trial. She told me that at the start of deliberations, jurors took a poll. Most thought Jones was innocent, but she says two men said guilty. And I said, how come you have a a decision already? I said, is it because he's black? And they said, yes. They said, yes, the two men. How do you like that? I remember this like it was yesterday. I don't know how, but I do. That's exactly what they said. The U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled racism by jurors could be grounds for a new trial. So in one of their motions, Jones' attorneys raised the issue of jury racial discrimination based on the Eleanor Urbati interview. The judge in the case, Thomas McGuire, set out to find the original jurors, summons them to his court in Fall River and quiz them about their deliberations 31 years ago. Eight of the original jurors were located and served with summons to appear. Four responded. One was sick. Three came to court and testified. But not the key juror, not Eleanor Arbati. I never got a notice to go there. I contacted Arbati after yesterday's hearing, where no one, not the attorneys, not the judge, knew where she was. Arbati says she was home in Hingham. If I couldn't get there, I certainly would have let someone know. But I never got anything. 81-year-old Abadi says if she was called to court, she would have told the judge the same thing she told me a year ago. 
two jurors were racially prejudiced. Well, is your decision based on him being black? And they said yes. Now, how much more plain can that be? The Fall River Superior Court couldn't be reached for comment. But during yesterday's hearing, the three jurors who did show up shed little new light on the critical question. Was the jury that convicted Darrell Jones of murder in 1986 racially biased? Bailiffs helped juror Maureen Bates to the witness stand. She was sworn in and questioned by Judge McGuire. Do you remember pretty well? I, I don't really remember. I've been trying to go through this in my mind. Sure. I don't remember any. I remember sitting there, but I don't remember... My memory isn't right. like, well, that's like right. it used to it's been be. been a long time. It has. Over the decades, memories fade. The foreman of the original jury testified he couldn't remember much. Neither could an alternate juror. Then Darrell Jones's defense lawyer gave a closing argument, saying the confluence of factors presented in three days of hearing showed justice had not been served in the original trial, that a key piece of evidence had been tampered with, that not a single eyewitness could ID Jones in court, and he didn't match the description of the murderer. The prosecution argued Jones's two previous appeals for a new trial had been rejected and said there was no new evidence. Looking perplexed, Judge McGuire gave attorneys on both sides a week to figure out what to do next about the question of jury discrimination. And just then, Darrell Jones surprised the court and his attorneys and spoke up. After more than three decades in prison for a murder he always insisted he did not commit, Jones said he had enough. All I know is prison now. I just wanted to get in here and put the truth on. Jones told the judge he didn't want to hear about jurors anymore or pursue the issue of jury racial discrimination. He just wanted to be judged on the evidence presented during the hearing. Please, Your Honor, I waive the issue. If I don't get out on that, then so be it, I waive it. But I'm not surrendering this little bit of sense of self I got that I know what happened in here and I can go to sleep and I can deal with it and the world know what happened in here and I'm not looking for no technicality. Many of those who showed up in court had hoped the judge would have decided if Darrell Jones was to get a new trial. Cassandra Jones says... Her cousin Darrell just wants a chance for the truth to come out. He's just very tired, and it needs to end. It needs to end. He needs to come home. Judge McGuire says he'll decide the case soon, but he didn't say when. That's Bruce Gellerman reporting. WBUR and the New England Center for Investigative Reporting collaborated on an investigation of Darrell Jones's case last year. We've linked to their report on our website, nextnewengland.org. We've been following another story over the last year, contamination in the drinking water in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Residents are concerned about chemicals getting into their well water from emissions at a nearby plastics plant. As Emily Corbin reports, they say state and federal officials aren't doing enough to protect them, so they're going door to door. Hello? Carol DePiro is in an awkward situation. The door of this house is wide open. Through the screen door, she can see inside. But nobody comes when she knocks. Hello? DePiro wears worn pink sneakers, has curly dark brown hair, and holds a handful of printed flyers. I'm not a loud person, she whispers. Then she folds up a flyer and quickly tosses it inside. She has more luck next door. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, you know, um, Carol and I live yeah, down the yeah, street. Yeah, I know you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm involved in the Citizens... DePiro is part of a small group of activists called Citizens for Clean Water. Their survey asks, basically, how long have you been in this town? And 
are you sick? DePiro does not seem to relish going door to door, but she's worried. The chemicals found in wells around here, known as PFAS, they've been linked to thyroid disease, cancer, immune function, and other problems. And DePiro's teenage son grew up drinking that water. I just cannot believe that the state is not worried about the people in this town and other towns that are popping up. It's by far the largest groundwater investigation that we've ever undertaken in in the state. Jim Martin is with the state's Department of Environmental Services. He says his department has been working nonstop. Since toxic chemicals were found here over a year ago, officials have tested suspicious wells all over the state. For those with water contamination above a certain level, the state has provided blood tests, bottled water, and connected hundreds of homes with wells to public systems. But activists say other states with the same kind of water contamination are doing more for residents. See, right now, New Hampshire follows federal guidelines for how much of these chemicals are safe to drink. It's a level scientists say may be too high. Vermont and New Jersey have set lower, more protective drinking water standards. The water at DePiro's house could be considered unsafe if she lived in Vermont. But she lives in New Hampshire, so it's considered safe, meaning the state won't guarantee additional filtering or blood tests. The state standard could even affect a class action lawsuit. I just feel like... They're hiding behind that EPA while the EPA is being basically disassembled. Other states have taken it upon themselves to look at the science. DePiro hopes the results of the Citizens for Clean Water Health survey might coax New Hampshire lawmakers and state officials to take Vermont's lead. Of course, to be scientific, a survey like this would need a few essential elements. They would need to have a large enough sample size if the sample size is too small, then you may not find a statistically significant effect, even if one is present. Courtney Kerrigan is a research fellow at Harvard who studies contaminants like this one. She lists off a handful of things a scientific study would need. DePiro says she knows her survey isn't scientific. Her goal is to motivate lawmakers or a university to do a real study. When I reached out to New Hampshire's Department of Health and Human Services, They sent an email back referring me to the federal government, which is considering studying health outcomes on military bases that are affected by similar contaminants. Such a massive study could have significant impact on science and on policy. But its funding will depend on Congress. So, Kerrigan says, its future is uncertain. The funding climate for this type of research is is not good. In the meantime, some states have tried to analyze health effects in their own affected communities. The state of Vermont looked at health outcomes surrounding a former plastics plant in Bennington. It found a significant association between PFOA levels and high blood pressure. New York State analyzed cancer in Hoosick Falls, another contamination site. It found no associations. Both studies were limited in scope and conducted in response to residents' requests. In New Hampshire, Citizens for Clean Water is trying to do things on its own. DePiro says it's hard. There's really just a small handful of us doing this, and some of them don't feel well. One organizer has immune system problems. DePiro has a thyroid disorder. Both might be caused by the drinking water. 
DePiro says the illness makes her tired, but it also makes her motivated. That's Emily Corwin reporting from New Hampshire Public Radio. Every day, nearly a million commuters travel on the Northeast Corridor, the rail network between Washington, D.C. and Boston. Many of those passengers cross over a small river in the coastal city of Norwalk, Connecticut. But the only way for a train to get across that river is on the Walk Bridge. It's a 120-year-old swing bridge. Sometimes when it swings open to let boats pass through, it gets stuck, causing chaos for commuters. Now state officials want to replace the deteriorating bridge. Ryan Karen King has our story. The Norwalk River Railroad Bridge, known locally as the Walk Bridge, has two jobs. One of them is to carry hundreds of trains over the river every day. The other job is to swing open for boat traffic between Long Island Sound and the Norwalk River. Although we call it a bridge, you have to keep in mind that it's much more than a bridge. It's actually a machine as well as a bridge. Bruce Cluet is a historian who studied movable bridges in Connecticut and has done consulting work for the state. There are tons of moving parts, there are control systems, uh, and there is a drive mechanism that really make this different from just a simple bridge that goes from point A to point B and happens to cross a river. On the shore of the Norwalk River, I watched the Walk Bridge's machinery in action during a test opening. The huge steel structure rotates on a circular pier, opening a channel on the river that larger boats can pass through. It takes a crew of eight about 10 minutes to open and close the bridge. Trains have been crossing the Norwalk River since the mid-1800s. The country's first major train accident took place at this site in 1853. The current bridge was built in 1896. And for the most part, it stood the test of time, swinging open for boat traffic a few hundred times a year. But in 2014, the bridge got stuck open twice. Yet again today, Metro North riders spent a good chunk of their morning waiting, waiting because a bridge in Norwalk was broken and the trains couldn't get by. The walk bridge had gotten stuck before, but officials said this was the first time they had significant concerns with the bridge's functionality. It got stuck again in 2016. Right now we're running a 19th century piece of infrastructure with a 21st century railroad on it. That's Jeff Portal, an engineer with the Connecticut Department of Transportation. At the end of the day, the bridge isn't dangerous. If the bridge was dangerous, we obviously wouldn't allow uh, train service to keep going on it. But, you know, like the human body, no matter how much medicine you put into it, eventually something is just gonna, gonna give out. And now the bridge is nearing the end of its useful life. DOT Commissioner Jim Redeker says it's a single point of failure for the entire region and needs to be replaced. The current walk bridge, 120 years old, is a single structure with four tracks on it. So when it fails, the entire Northeast Corridor and New Haven line cannot operate. The bridge also has a large presence in the city of Norwalk. Its steel beams sit only a few feet away from an aquarium at the center of the commercial district. Redeker says the state will try to limit disruption to the city and the rail line when it builds the new bridge using what's called accelerated bridge construction. But it still won't be easy. We're getting really good at this, but that'll be the trickiest one we'll ever do. I don't think I have any business telling the Connecticut DOT what bridge they should build or not build. What I'm looking for is total transparency. I want to see DOT 
understand the collateral damage that can happen. That's naval architect and local business owner Bob Kunkel. He's standing on the mouth of Norwalk's Harbor. Kunkel would rather see the state rehabilitate the old bridge. If the concerning issue is is that it doesn't open and close, then let's take a harder look on how do we make it open and close. A century ago, the Walk Bridge allowed commerce to develop along both the river and the railroad. But Kunkel says the environmental impact of building a new bridge would hurt the city's economy. Deborah Goldstein is the commissioner of a local electric utility. She says she understands the Walk Bridge is a crucial link in the region's transportation system, but she doesn't want the needs of Norwalk to be overshadowed. The question of whether Norwalk should suffer the pain on, on behalf of uh, this complete reconstruction uh, is partly weighed against the need of the commuters of the entire Northeast Corridor who need to be able to get reliably through from here to there. The federal government is planning to run new high-speed trains through the region over the next few decades. And Goldstein says she thinks it's better to wait for those plans to sort out before making big investments, especially investments that could have such a big impact on the small city. That's WNPR reporter Ryan Karen King. If you want to see the swinging walk bridge in action, check out Ryan's video at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, doctors at a New Hampshire VA hospital blow the whistle on unsanitary conditions and patient neglect. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The VA Medical Center in Manchester, New Hampshire, has come under fire for allegedly delaying care to some patients with spine conditions, resulting in their paralysis. Whistleblowers there also allege that the purchase of important medical equipment had been delayed because of budgetary concerns, and the medical center has been struggling with an infestation of flies. These were some of the concerns that doctors brought to VA investigators who took no action. But when these same concerns were reported to the Boston Globe Spotlight team, response from the VA was swift. Peter Biello covers Veterans Affairs for New Hampshire Public Radio, and he's been following the story as it develops. Peter, welcome back to Next. Happy to be here, John. Why don't you give us the timeline first? Tell us about when the problems all began. Well, the infestation of flies began in 2007. That's been something they've been dealing with uh, for about a decade, or, or some say, in fact, in the Boston Globe, that it's been even longer than that. Um, but the the problems with uh, delaying care uh, seem to have started uh, later than that. And perhaps the best way to understand this story is to see it through the lens of Dr. Ed Coyce, who is uh, the lead among the whistleblowers who, who came forward with these complaints. He started at the Manchester VA uh, after spending uh, nearly three decades in private practice. And he, he claimed that he thought it was going to be uh, sort of an easy retirement job, but he quickly found out that was not the case. What he saw was that patients with spine issues, which was his primary specialty, were getting progressively worse, not because they were shot in combat or had been, you know, hurt by a tank or something out in the battlefield, but because they had these conditions that grew progressively worse that didn't need to. These were the kinds of conditions that medicine had solved years ago, but because of budget concerns, because of problems with the Veterans Choice Program, these patients uh, were not given timely care 
the problems were made to get worse, and veterans suffered. Some even ended up paralyzed. Uh, so Dr. Coyce took these concerns to um, his superiors locally, and those superiors declined to uh, assist and alleviate the problems. So uh, Coyce, he got out of his silo and started talking to other doctors who were experiencing similar problems. They banded together. They got a lawyer. They, they wrote to uh, Senator Gene Shaheen, for example, who referred the matter to the Senate uh, Veterans Affairs Committee. And she also uh, basically prompted uh, an internal investigation by the Office of Medical Inspector within the VA. That investigation didn't turn up anything. So out of frustration, Coyce and 11 other doctors and VA employees uh, went to the Boston Globe. And then the Boston Globe took several months, if not a year, putting together this report that appeared uh, in mid-July. As we suggested at the start of the segment, once the Globe article from their Spotlight team gets published, now things start to go into motion. What what happened in the wake of this report? VA Secretary David Shelkin acted swiftly. Within hours of the publication of that report, he removed from their positions Manchester VA Medical Center Director Danielle Ocker and Chief of Staff James Schlosser. They were removed from their positions pending what he says would be a new investigation into these very same allegations. And a new investigation was started immediately. One of the shocking things when you read through the Globe article is right at the top, it's it's that this VA hospital received a four-star rating out of five from the VA that would put it in the top third of VA hospitals nationwide. How exactly is that explained that a, a hospital with so many problems on so many different levels was given a four-star rating? Well, here's the thing about that rating system. It is not a measure of objective quality. It's not like when you go to a hotel and say, I really like this hotel. It's it's a five-star hotel or I had a terrible experience. It's a one-star. The VA star rating has to do with a measure of improvement. So it looks at how much did this hospital improve on its past problems over the past year and how did it improve compared to the improvements of other VA medical centers within the system. So it's it's uh, uh, acting VA medical center director Al Montoya said, you know, for one hospital to rise in the rating system, another has to go down. It's 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 relative. So in theory, you could have a terrible five star VA medical center because it made the most improvements, and you could have a really excellent VA medical center with a one star rating because they were so good they had little room to improve. Mm. Interesting system. Uh, as you've said, the, the whistleblowers who made the complaints to uh, Senator Shaheen and to the Globe uh, were doctors at this Manchester VA. Uh, what are the patients saying about the care that they've gotten there? There's a range of experiences here. In the wake of, of the Boston Globe report, there were some uh, other stories that came out where veterans were saying, hey, you know, I've been to the Manchester VA I've had excellent care there. So what are these doctors complaining about? And others say that they understand that this kind of bureaucracy is rampant at the hospital and that they know what these doctors have faced. One of these latter veterans, uh, Clinton Mosbeck of Manchester, uses a wheelchair to get around. He has MS. And he needed a special medical bed, preferably a queen size, because he's, he's kind of a large guy and he couldn't just roll over on a small bed or he'd fall off the bed. But the VA decided to give him one of the smaller beds anyway, He couldn't use it. And he spoke at a town hall style meeting in Manchester uh, Monday night about his complaints to the VA about this bed. When I said something to him about it, and I was engaged at the time, I said something to him in prosthetics. I says, what about my girlfriend? You don't need to be sleeping with anybody. Bullshit. I'm a 44-year-old man. You know, 
I'm not engaged anymore. Thank you, prosthetics. Mosbeck says he's moving out of the state in part because he wants to get away from the Manchester VA. Uh, another veteran who spoke at the meeting was Rodney DeMaine. He says he needed a pacemaker. According to doctors at a different hospital, he needed to have that surgery as soon as possible. The Manchester VA wanted to send him to another VA in Massachusetts, and here's how he explained that. The VA wanted me to drive to Jamaica Plains so that they could do it, so that they'd pay for it. And I says, you know what? I'm going to stay right here, and I'm going to have this surgery. And I said, when I get out, I'm going to talk to my senator or congressman. You will pay for this. And you know, after I mentioned senator or congressman, I didn't even have to go to them. They were worried that I was going to do that. The Boston Globe did report on a, on a few examples of, you know, the hospital preliminarily denying care and then getting some firm pushback from veterans that said, no, I need I need the care in this particular way. And and after significant pushback in, on some occasions, the Manchester VA did did relent. Uh, but this is an interesting thing about veterans in general. It's, it's hard to generalize about veterans. But here's what I keep hearing from people over and over is that veterans do not like to complain. They, they pride themselves in being self-sufficient, and they worry to some extent that if they criticize the VA, the good parts that they like about the VA will go away. For, for those who are making complaints, I assume there's some finger-pointing, some blame to go around. From the whistleblowers, the doctors who have stepped forward, what are they saying about who is to blame with this series of problems happening at Manchester VA? Well, the whistleblowers don't often name names, although they, they, they did occasionally say that Secretary Shulkin should have gone further and removed a few other people. Uh, but more than that, they really blamed the bureaucracy. One of the doctors summed up the problem pretty clearly. His name is Kevin Keenan, and he did work in primary care at the VA, but he says he had to quit because he found it so frustrating to be forced to deal with the VA's bureaucracy. The folks at the top have no skin in the game when it comes to clinical outcomes. They just don't. They have metrics, and if one of those metrics is going bad, they will hire somebody to stay on top of that metric and to come around and tell each doctor that they need to do this better and make sure they ask every patient this or that. You've been reporting on a, on a controversial program called Veterans Choice, which is meant to uh, help vets who don't live close to VA facilities get care at, at private hospitals, and, and I'm sure there are quite a few vets who, who live far afield from Manchester or another facility. Um, but VA hospitals are responsible for coordinating those appointments. Um, how much did Veterans Choice have to do with the dysfunction that these whistleblowers at, at Manchester are, are calling attention to? Veterans Choice has a number of problems that are unique to Veterans Choice. If the hospital says you really should use Veterans Choice, they have to call this number. They end up with a uh, talking to a call center who may or may not have an adequate grasp of what's uh, available in New Hampshire or wherever area the veteran happens to be living. But the fact of Veterans Choice uh, presents a kind of choice for administrators because Veterans Choice is a separate line item in their budget, and it's dedicated to getting veterans out of the local medical center and into private doctor's offices. So the allegations that these doctors are making is that hospital administrators preferred to use that dedicated pot of money first. So that would end up setting, sending veterans unnecessarily far afield, and of course, 
those problems with Veterans Choice also included delays. Uh, Veterans wouldn't get calls back from that 1-800 number that they had to call. And so the problems that they had would get progressively worse. This seems to be something that's symptomatic across the VA system, maybe not to the level as has been reported here in Manchester, but problems like this have cropped up around the nation. Perhaps the problems run deeper than just a a facility in, in your state of New Hampshire. Right. This is something that could be coming from the top down. Some of uh, the doctors at that event earlier this week were speaking about receiving mandates from a central office in D.C. Suddenly, all the VA medical centers have to do X. Uh, But the problem is that they may not have properly, quote unquote, resourced X, meaning, okay, you're going to tell us to do this, but are you going to give us any money, any extra resources to get it done? And some of these things may be tiny, right? They might be just, now you have to fill out this form when you perform this procedure. Uh, You may have to check this box. But how much time does that take? How many resources do you need to do that? And that seems to be a problem coming from the top down rather than from the bottom up. So what happens next in the story? Well, the investigators have to finish their uh, their work taking a look at what actually happened. One of the complaints that uh, Dr. Ed Coyce had early on is that he was not interviewed in the uh, previous investigations. Uh, there's a sense that, that he'll have more say now in what's happening. Also, uh, Congresswoman Annie Custer here in New Hampshire is holding a field hearing on this on September 18th. It, it seems to suggest that there's going to be some some activity in Congress or at least some acknowledgement by those in D.C. that, that there's some serious issues in Manchester and possibly system-wide that need to be addressed. Peter Biello covers Veterans Affairs for New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find links to his reporting as well as reporting from the Boston Globe Spotlight team at nextnewengland.org. Between a quarter and a third of homeless people have some sort of mental illness, and roughly that same percentage suffer from substance abuse disorder. Columnist Susan Campbell, who writes about housing and homelessness for the New England News Collaborative, told us the story of one man, Reggie Moten, who fits both of these categories, and how he illustrates the years of systemic neglect of mentally ill homeless people in New England. Susan, welcome back to Next. Thank you very much. Susan, who's Reggie Moten? Reggie is a gentleman you probably, if you ever saw him in the streets of Hartford, you'd drive right by. Reggie was homeless for about two decades. He was in and out of shelters. He lived in abandoned buildings, and he was recently housed in Hartford. He was dealing with a couple of pretty big issues. Reggie has uh, mental illness challenges, including depression, and he also um, is dealing with a substance addiction. Let's listen to some tape uh, we have of of Reggie talking about his mental illness and and what it meant to his life. You know, I would get depressed and I would go out and get a beer. I would would get depressed and I would go out and hang out on the corner and and do what the next person was doing. You have to look as to why you continue to use. A lot of people, like I said, uh, are homeless or or they suffer from mental illness and, and they don't know about it. I mean, they don't know about the mental illness, and, and, and they don't know why they continue to do the things that they do. But once you start looking into what's going on, the, the root of it, then you'll find answers, you know, and that's what I'm finding answers every day. How much of a correlation is there between homelessness and, and some sort of mental illness? It really depends on who you ask, but the the numbers vary from anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of people who are homeless are dealing with some form of severe mental illness, Um, and about that same percentage are dealing with some kind of chronic substance abuse. But if you talk about 
mental illness, not just severe mental illness. I've seen the numbers go up to 40 to 45 percent. There used to be services provided for for decades and decades at the state level, and they were in large institutions. Uh, All of the New England states had them, and over the course of time, they began to be shuttered or just shrunk in such a size that maybe only a a few people are are there. What sort of impact has that had on people, this deinstitutionalization that's happened over decades? The care that was offered in these institutions in no way reflect the best practices that that we accept now are are much more effective treatment. But what it did, and um, other people have said this better, but it created a perfect storm with all these institutions closing down. There was no alternative, nowhere for people to go. So while they maybe had housing, it was stable housing, it wasn't necessarily helping them with their mental illness or their substance abuse, they were at least housed. When the uh, state, and, and it's not just... Connecticut, all the New England states started to close these institutions in a really respectable spirit of reform. They just put people out on the streets, and there were no services available to them. The biggest prescription to help uh, so many people who have been homeless and certainly those dealing with mental illness is finding them housing. Here Reggie talks a little bit about uh, the, the real impact that that had on his life, getting his own apartment. I guess the biggest support that I, I've had uh, dealing with my depression and being homeless is having my own apartment because that changed, like I said, 75% of the way that I was feeling because now I have something to hold on to. You know, being homeless you and, and, and leaving the shelter, you don't have anything to hold on to. You know, you can leave your clothes there and whatever, you know, you you don't have any kind of substance. But once you get some substance, uh, uh, for me, my apartment, you know, I don't want to lose this. Susan, this is something you've been writing about uh, for us uh, in a project on housing and homelessness for years now. And it really is the power of housing. How important is, is having a house, a place to go for someone who's faced the life that Reggie has? It's critical. Um, housing act advocates call it housing first. It's a, it's an idea that if you get someone stably housed, then you can provide all the other services. But if you think about the life of someone who's living on the streets, Reggie, he's not going to be able to meet his appointments. He He's going to be looking for food. He's going to be looking for some sort of shelter. So his attentions are on survival. Once you're housed, at least the way it's explained to me, you can start looking outward. Um, when you're on the street, you have to look very much inward, and four walls is a jail. That's a jail cell, and and Reggie, bit by bit, has started to create a home for himself. And from that base, now he's he's seeking help for his mental illness, for his challenges otherwise, and he knows that he has to take care of himself and stay away from certain areas and, and think about his addiction. It will always be with him, and he can do that now. He has that base. The, the troubling part for many people watching state budgets or city budgets right now is that programs like the one that helped Reggie get housing, well, they're facing some really tough times, and that's in part because of the, the difficult budget struggles that are happening at, at the municipal and the state level. And I think what people have to remind themselves, and, and I'm looking at this for my next piece, is that housing people like Reggie actually is cost-effective. It saves money in the long term. And when we're talking about budgets, and everyone understands budgetary challenges, 
But if you cut off your nose to spite your face and create yet another perfect storm, then you once again have people out on the streets getting inadequate care, and they, in the end, cost anywhere from forty to $75,000 a year as opposed to getting them housed. It's so much cheaper, inexpensive to house people and provide them with all the services they need. Before I let you go, Susan, I wanted to play one last piece of tape. Uh, earlier we heard Reggie talk about one of the things that makes his life in his apartment something that, that he loves. He, he's, got a, he's got a fish tank. He tells us a little story about the, about the fish that he takes care of. I had a, a 10-gallon fish tank, and um, one day I just left the house, and I was going uh, down a, one of the streets uh, near my house, and I seen this 40-gallon fish tank. And, uh, you know, I said to myself, it don't look like it's broke. So I picked it up, put it on my shoulder, brought it home, cleaned it up, and now I have about 40 to 50 fish in it. <laughs> and they've been there for almost four months now. I like my fish because I could sit down and I could watch them dance in the water all day, you know. And, and um, it's not a big thing, but... If, if you uh, took your time to watch fish swim, they don't, they don't swim normally. <laughs> they just do whatever they want to do, and they're so at peace. And, 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 and having that peace, watching the peace of them, brings me peace, peace in my life, you know? <laughs> he has a little bit, bit of peace in his life. I love that. He's very poetic, watching the fish dance. He would, when I was talking with him, he would say something, and I would think, oh, my God, that's beautiful. You know, and here's this man who now can share this kind of stuff with us that we may not have heard from. Susan Campbell writes about housing and homelessness for the New England News Collaborative. Susan, thanks so much for talking. Thank you, John. You can find Susan's stories about housing and homelessness on our website, nextnewengland.org. Click on Opinion. Coming up, as New England embraces a more immigrant-friendly stance than other parts of the country, we will revisit a time when it wasn't so welcoming. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Remember this? Boston was here for me and my family, and for as long as I am mayor, I will never turn my back on those who are seeking a better life. We will continue to foster trusting relationships between law enforcement and the immigrant community, and we will not waste vital police resources on misguided federal actions. That's Boston Mayor Marty Walsh speaking in January in reaction to President Trump's executive order promising to strip funding from so-called sanctuary cities. And as we've reported, leaders of other New England cities have embraced immigrant-friendly policies. But back in the 1850s, a new political party formed in opposition to waves of immigration, swept to power in Boston and other cities, as well as the state legislature. Anna Fisher-Pinkert tells the story of a Massachusetts Know-Nothing party. In 1854, a single party took over Massachusetts government in a landslide victory. After election night, 40 state senators and all but three of 379 state representatives belonged to this one political party. The same party had won mayoral races in Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, and New York City. This party boasted over one million members nationwide. 
But the really shocking thing about this party, and it's what we now call the Know-Nothing Party, is that it didn't exist before 1850. In a few short years, the Know-Nothings went from total obscurity to incredible power. And a few short years after that, they were gone. So why were the Know-Nothings so successful, and why was their moment in power so brief? To answer that, we need to go back to 1850. And to do that, we talked to Tyler Anbinder, professor of history at George Washington University. And I study the American Civil War period and American immigration and immigration history. This is probably a hard thing for a historian to admit, but Anbinder says that the 1850s were kind of boring. You know, what are you going to do after work? There's no TV, there's no radio, there's no internet, so you join groups and you have meetings. And so it was very common for someone, you know, to have their temperance club meet on Wednesdays and their, uh, you know, maybe their charitable group meet on Thursdays. Fraternal orders and secret societies became really, really popular among men in the 1850s. They came up with code words and secret handshakes. They met in private lodges and halls. If you look at fraternity rows on a lot of college campuses, you can see Greek letter societies that date back to the 1850s. The Know-Nothings began as one of these fraternal orders. In fact, if you visit Ashfield, Massachusetts, there's even an old lodge that was used as Know-Nothing headquarters. The name Know-Nothing was given to party members because if asked about their club, they claimed to know nothing. They called themselves the American Party. I think it's safe to say that the Know-Nothings pretty much make up a cross-section of Americans if you leave out immigrants. Some members of the Know Nothing Party were wealthy, some were poor, some were from cities, some from the country. What drew them together was one big issue, immigration. The nation, and Massachusetts in particular, were undergoing big demographic shifts. In 1853 and 54, immigration has reached record levels, never before seen in American history. So much so that you have cities like New York that are coming close to being half foreign born. Due to the potato famine in Ireland, an estimated 1.5 million people immigrated to North America over the course of four years. 100,000 Irish people arrived in Boston between 1846 and 1849. Today, it's pretty hard to imagine Boston without its immigrant heritage, and particularly without its Irish heritage. But in the middle of the 19th century, a lot of people thought that the Irish would never be real Americans. These are people who feel like the character of the country is being changed by the immigrants and feel that that change of character is going to hurt the country. What's more, lots of ministers in Protestant churches preach that the greatest sins in the world were three things. Slavery, drunkenness, and Catholicism. The Irish immigrants were Catholic, and they seemed to bring with them a drinking culture that clashed with temperance-minded Protestants. In the eyes of a lot of New Englanders, the Irish embodied the biggest threat that America had ever seen, and someone had to step in to stop their influence from spreading. But for the know-nothings to cross over from the clubhouse to the statehouse, something else had to give. In the 1850s, the two-party political system in Massachusetts was on the cusp of change. It's really political chaos. The old Whig party was basically falling apart. This is Tom Whalen, Associate Professor of Social Science at Boston University. So there were a lot of people searching for a political party to represent them. In 1854, 
the American Party took advantage of this power vacuum to sweep the elections in Massachusetts. Overnight, the Know-Nothings won the entire state Senate and the majority of the House of Representatives. Their candidate for governor, Henry Gardner, beat his Whig opponent in a landslide victory. In the same election, nativists took over many city and town governments, including Boston. The party wasted no time in proposing and passing legislation that curtailed immigrants' power in Massachusetts. Here's Tyler Anbinder again. In Massachusetts, they outlawed the teaching of foreign languages in the public schools. To dispel from popular use every foreign language, so great a preserver of unassimilating elements of character. To print all public documents in the English tongue alone, to ordain that all schools, aided by the state, shall use the same language. The Know Nothings required the reading of the King James Bible in school every day. The school committee in each town and city in this commonwealth shall require the daily reading of some portion of the Bible in the common English version. They passed a law in Massachusetts banning state judges from naturalizing immigrants and making them citizens. That was a way to make it harder for immigrants to become citizens and thus limit their political power. The thing the Massachusetts Know Things most want to do but they don't accomplish is changing the law to make it 21 years until an immigrant can vote. None but the native-born shall be eligible to office and no alien shall be allowed to vote unless he has been a resident within the United States 21 years and legally naturalized. They do manage to get through a bill adding two years so that immigrants have to wait two additional years added to the original five until they can vote. The Know Nothings also succeeded in removing Latin inscriptions from the Massachusetts State House. Latin, to the know-nothings, represented the foreign influence of the Pope. In 1855, at the height of know-nothing power in Massachusetts, the General Court enacted the Intoxicating Liquors Act, which made it illegal to manufacture or sell alcoholic beverages without a license. But the only legal licenses that would be issued were to a town or city agent, who could then purchase spirituous or intoxicating liquors to be used in the arts or for medicinal, chemical, and mechanical purposes, and no other. What's more, if you lied about what you wanted to do with that liquor, you could wind up with a hefty $20 fine. The know-nothings across the country were in agreement about immigration. But they didn't all agree on another big issue of the day, slavery. In Massachusetts, Governor Gardner and the Know-Nothing Legislature actually passed reforms that made it harder for runaway slaves to be returned to southern plantations. Massachusetts Know-Nothings worried that immigrants would fail to support their anti-slavery activities. In other parts of the country, many Know-Nothings were pro-slavery. This internal divide didn't matter when immigration was the top issue for Massachusetts voters. But as time went on, the one-issue Know-Nothing party started to lose popularity. What happens is you have all these efforts by pro-slavery forces to try to spread slavery in the mid-1850s. And so people come to the conclusion that, you know, the Pope is not as immediate a threat as is the slaveholder. And then the Civil War buried the Know-Nothing Party for good. The Civil War changes things because now the country's political division is clearly the slavery and the race issue, not the immigration and the religion issues. And the Civil War, with the hundreds of thousands of deaths, makes that something that's going to remain the case for generations afterwards. 
Tom Whalen has another idea for why the know-nothings faded from power so quickly. What really did in the know-nothings here was just kind of their extreme views with regards to immigrants. And, you know, I always like to say you can't argue with demographics. Demographics is fate politically. And that's certainly been the case here in Massachusetts and uh, the rest of the nation. Even then, the Irish immigrants knew that their true destiny, their political power, lay in their numbers. And, of course, they would take over, basically, um, the Boston political machinery by the end of the 19th century. The newly formed Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, replaced the know-nothings in the run-up to the Civil War as the dominant anti-slavery party and absorbed most of the know-nothing voters. Almost none of the laws that the know-nothings passed in the 1850s are with us today, but they did leave a powerful political legacy. You know, it's kind of passed down from immigrant family to, to from parent to child that the, the Republicans are the party of the know-nothings, and so you can never support the Republican Party no matter... What, even if they don't talk about immigrants, you should know that that's what they once did, and they once tried to take away our rights. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party successfully courted the Irish vote. The Irish were a key constituency now. They became a swing vote that they could not be ignored. Outgroups become in-groups because of the sheer numbers that they can bring to bear on the political process. And depending on how politically sophisticated are, they can marshal those numbers, they can put together a political machine that can stay in power for a very long time. The Irish Americans made that possible. And that's really the legacy that the know-nothings leave behind. They couldn't stop immigration from changing the United States. Because, as Tom Whalen says, demography is fate. Through their success, they opened the door to other minority groups, such as the Italians, Jews, the constant thread is the idea that today's immigrants are worse and different than past generations of immigrants. They can't become true Americans. That's a sentiment that you see right after the American Revolution all the way up till today. As, as people see that Irish Americans assimilate just like other Americans and they adopt American values and, and you know, help change what, it, what an American value is, then what it means to be an American changes, and, and that's constantly happening in American history, and it always has. That story was produced by Anna Fisher Pinkert for the Commonwealth Museum in Boston. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Tucker Ives. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can find more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.